Hi, and welcome to NASIO Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock at our headquarters in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Matt Pincus here in Washington, D.C. Today on NASIO Voices, we're very excited to interview one of our state CIOs, Fred Britton, CIO of Maine. We'll talk to Fred about his top priorities in Maine, a recap of his first year as CIO, as well as his recent meetings with key congressional staff in Washington, D.C. Fred, welcome and thanks so much for joining us on NASIO Voices. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Fred, thanks for joining us. And uh, we have a bunch of questions for you, but I do want to start with a little bit of background for our listeners. Um, You've been CIO for almost a year now, but spent 25 years before that with the University of Maine system. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up here? Sure. I grew up, I cut my teeth in the university system, starting as a student employee at a help desk way back. Hmm. Uh, And then over the course of the years, I did you know, I ran a network. I was a system administrator. I was a developer. I led a development team and kind of worked my way up through the ranks with, you know, just about all the different jobs that were relevant at the time. Um, Eventually, you know, my last post was a number of years as associate CIO for the University of Maine system. Uh, But I also did step out of IT or partially out of IT for a little while as a, and took on a role as a chief operating officer doing uh, predominantly strategic planning and strategic plan implementation for uh, one of our campus presidents, which was a lot of fun. Some of the most fun I had in my life. Also happy to be back fully in IT. For, and I thought I would be a lifer in education. <laughs> I never thought I would leave education. Uh, I loved the mission. I loved the being about service. Public higher ed really rang, resonated with me as a valuable effort, something I could look back at after retirement and say, I made a difference, right? I helped people. And that was important to me. But somewhere along the way, you know, Maine's a small state and I get the phone call, a new administration had taken office. And one of the, the thing they were looking for, and I, and I presume this is why they called me and they were looking for someone with my type of background, is the main IT had been unified back in 2005 and the, some, some of the natural lack of harmony that comes with, you have agencies who had an IT shop, they lost their IT shop, they're now having a central IT organization that perhaps isn't nimble enough, isn't responsive as, as, as much as they would like, and there's a lot of tension. And so what the new administration was looking for was someone who could really build strong partnerships and had the ability to collaborate. And in higher ed, for better or for worse, you don't move without consensus. Everything has strong governance and collaboration and really requires a lot of buy-in, and it's far less hierarchical than a, a lot of other organizations in the way that decisions are made. Sure. And so I think that's, I assume that's why I got the phone call. And that was my number one charge on arrival from the administration was fixed partnerships. And that's what we've been doing amongst all the other things that are involved in, a, in running an IT organization these days. And you were appointed in, in April of last year? Yep. I was appointed in April. The administration first called in January. We started to have some conversations And that was really the earliest I could get there. I love that story. So you talked a little bit about the difference between, um, you know, the consensus that you had in higher ed and the difference in state government. So I I assume it's been a bit of a 
cultural change for you in the last year or so. Can you are there any other differences that you've seen in the tech space between higher ed and state government? There absolutely is. And this is an area that when I talk to my colleagues from across the country that sit in similar roles, and many of them come from the private sector. And so my observations are state government actually seems quicker to get things done. State government seems to be uh, a little crisper in their ability to make decisions and move things forward. And in all honesty, I think we do. And, and you know, now I'm, I'm comparing a public university, not a private. So think about a lot less resources available. But I also think there is sometimes a much stronger focus on who it is we serve. In state government, the citizen is always at the forefront, right? We know when we're serving an agency, it really is about that indirect service to the citizen. And in higher ed, there's a number of different sort of paths that you wander down. There's a strong faculty governance, and and frequently you find that in, uh, some institutions are actually become more faculty focused than student focused. And it seems, and, and as wrong as that seems, it was a nice experience to come to state government and see this is really about serving the public, no question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was that was really nice. The other thing is in state government, there's a lot more work that happens around application development support than in higher ed. It's there's a much broader portfolio of services. So we go from counting fish to issuing driver's licenses, and there's just in higher ed there tends to be a rather narrow set of applications that run, and they're more and more off the shelf. So there's very there's less and less app dev happening in that space all the time. Mm-hmm. Never a dull day in state government, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> it's not dull. No. Yeah. So can you talk about some of your top priorities since becoming CIO? I, I can. And I think you'll find that if, if you talk to other CIOs, you're going to hear many of the same things. But before I arrived, I had done an assessment and I arrived with really you know, I had the partnership charge from the administration, and I saw just from research and asking questions about the organization and, and talking with a few folks served by the organization was there were really six areas that I knew I was going to have to do some work. One, budget. Two, security. I mean, everybody talks about those, you know, right at the top. Uh, workforce can't match private sector salaries. Supply is extremely limited. Many folks who are on the cusp of retirement and will be departing, what are we going to do when that hits? So all those same workforce problems that that all the states face. IT service management was one that became very apparent to me that we really needed to look at how we were going to apply stronger process and methodology. I was coming into an IT organization where, and I hear this from the agencies all the time, they talk about individuals from IT and they say, you know, Susie's fantastic. Johnny was great, but IT isn't so good. <laughs> and I hear that again and again. I, I never hear someone say, I really don't want to work with Jimmy. They love the people and the people are very talented, but they don't have some of the nice methodical process. So people know if you call the help desk, they're going to be great. You'll have a good experience. But if they have to escalate it, you might fall between the cracks. So there's a number of things around really solidifying process so that we're a little less person focused and more about process and we can, you know, sort of weather some of those storms. So that's going to be really important. 
Um, one that we don't talk about an awful lot, but is important to me, and I and it's something that we've really put the pedal down is IT accessibility. So meeting ADA requirements, federal and state, uh, frequently overlooked. Very, ex- I mean, it's a, it is expensive to do. It's it gets in the way. It slows things down, but it's such it's a it's the right thing to do. Can you talk and, a little bit you know, more about that, Fred? Just sure. I mean, ex- so, give us a better overview. Sure. So IT accessibility is thinking about folks who have some sort of disability, you know, cognitive, visual, tactical, whatever that is. And how do we make systems such that they're going to work fine with a screen reader or if we're doing a broadcast that we make sure that we have captions available for folks that might have a hearing issue. So all of those things that are required by law that we do are frequently an afterthought in many organizations. And as we think more about digital government, it is technology becomes the primary mechanism for communication and the acquisition of services. So if you are in a wheelchair and this is your only way to get to, you know, to, to acquire these services, we need to make sure that we have everything aligned such that folks who have some sort of uh, limitation can use those services. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's important. It's, it's very important to our public. And if you've ever experienced somebody who really relies on a piece of technology in order to interface with the world, you realize how important that is. But, you know, I'll give you an example. My wife uh, works with disabled folks and she would come home with this gadget and she had a a resident in the facility who could push buttons and that was the extent of it for communication. And she put little pictures, right? And one might be a picture of her and another might be a picture of a cup of coffee. And the person could hit, you know, her name, Denise, and then hit coffee. And that's how this person would communicate. And if that device was broken, this person had no way to communicate with anybody else. Yeah. So that's how important it becomes. So this was a big area. And the last one was really kind of in some ways aligned with partnerships, but, you know, to try to develop a strong customer experience initiative, which, you know, has a broad based impact because it's not just when you implement a customer experience initiative, there's a lot of side effects, right? You get much stronger morale amongst your staff who are delivering the services. It generates pride. Uh, People then begin to want to work with you more. They then begin to advocate for funding. So there's a lot of great side benefits beyond just quality service that comes with these initiatives. So establishing something in that space was also a priority. And in that case, are you uh, considering the customers to be agencies or citizens? Citizens are predominantly served by us indirectly. The majority of what we do is directly to agencies. There's only a handful of things that we do that directly serve the public. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about more about that effort that you've been working on? We have been talking about customer relationship management a lot more in the last year or so. So I think that's really okay. interesting. I'd say there's a difference between customer relationship management and customer experience. Okay. The relationship management sort of requires that the folks you're working with have a good experience. But as we work on the relationships, that's also in developing how do you manage IT? How do you govern IT? How do we gain their perspective and understanding where the customer experience is? It's about making sure that every interaction they have with the IT organization is positive. And and people say, so how would you tell it's working? And and I'll give you two statements. That is, is, this is the ideal for me. You're a new employee and you go 
you show up on the job and you go to a colleague and say, I don't know how to do X. And the response you get is, call the folks at IT, they're going to be great. And so that folks know that that's the expectation, right? Mm -hmm. This is what's going to happen for you if you call them, you know, you'll be in their warm embrace or however you want to say it. Um, The other thing that is uh, exemplifies a, a solid customer experience is when that new person starts and say, hey, at my old job, you know, we did we did something different and it worked this way, but we really need technology. And the colleague says, call IT and tell them your idea. Huh. They're absolutely going to listen to you. They're going to explore it with you. It may not be a viable idea, but you can count on them working through it together with you. You know, that's where I'd like to see the organization, that that's how people feel about us. Mm-hmm. Do you think you've, do you think you're getting towards that goal? I do. That's great. So I think the other piece of this that I want to touch on is your work with local governments in Maine, especially in terms of providing cybersecurity assistance and, you know, ransomware recovery and mitigation. And last episode on this podcast, we highlighted the fantastic paper that our colleague Meredith Ward worked on with National Governors Association to highlight specific efforts from a variety of states in helping local governments. Can you talk about this from your perspective in Maine? I can. And by the way, kudos to Meredith and the folks over at NGA. It's a great document. And in fact, we're going to use some of those principles as we're developing some strategic planning around security and sort of forefront in that strategic plan is local governments and crossing boundaries to other branches of government. Let me be blunt. We're, I think that in Maine, we're imma- very immature on this space compared to where some of our some other states are leading, particularly the ones that were highlighted in that document. We did have a, you know, a very close call with a ransomware event in October, and we were seeing some traffic out from local governments. And that was where it became clear to me, that's where we are most vulnerable. Those are the folks who are the neediest. I, I spoke to some local governments who said, our IT shop is really a consultant who comes here for two days a week or for two hours a week or four hours a week. And right there, their function is really they apply Windows patches or they, you know, make sure the backups are running, but they don't have cyber expertise. That's not what what these folks are contracting for during this event. And we thought, you know, we don't know whether the folks that are issuing the ransomware are actually going to pull the trigger and encrypt things and go through that. But we're gearing up saying, how do we do this and saying, you know, can we deploy people? Can we at least have a a war room where folks can dial in and we'll give advice. And those are the kinds of things we tried to prepare. In the end, I think we only had two or three areas hit within the state, which is small enough that we could say we can deploy staff to those sites to help them with recovery. We know we can't do that if it's much larger. So in the strategic plan, we'll be looking at uh, the Wisconsin model, I think is fantastic, where they've created a virtual team of cyber folks simply through having volunteers coming in from the municipalities and they provide training opportunities. Uh, That's one area we'd like to look at. The, where we would really like to go is around actually providing both prevention and recovery kinds of services to the local governments. If we could establish funding and some structures where we could actually get municipalities on a single network and do some perimeter defense and detection, we'd like to do that. 
and that's limited, but more importantly is, is having availability of personnel and resources that might just be a phone call away that we can bring to the site if, if they face problems. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of work today in front of us. We have done some briefings uh, working with the Maine Emergency Management Agency. We've done some briefings of county officials in, in preparation, and there's just a lot more work to do there. Yeah, I, I think this is a really interesting point. I mean, I know we've talked to some other CIOs who've talked about, and I've kind of termed this as sort of like a, a grassroots political campaign in terms of a state CIO such as yourself has to go and physically meet with local government officials all across the state to be able to educate them not only about the nature of the threat, but then when something happens that you are a resource that's available for them to contact. So are you doing these similar things? I know Eric Boyatz talked about going to speak to small county conferences. Are you doing anything like that in Maine? We have not done it yet, but I'll tell you that is on the roadmap. We are in the midst of a pretty large budget ask around security that will really beef up our staffing as well. And then based on that, I think we want to begin to make the move. We've certainly communicated with the governor in the fall about locals being in some jeopardy and our desire to want to get out and help them. Obviously, a lot of support in doing that. We will then begin to go out and have those conversations looking for places where perhaps multiple municipalities come together. Maine's a big state and there's a lot of rural municipalities, you know, that these sort of unorganized townships that don't even really have a government. Right. So it's it's going to be a challenge, but that's on the roadmap. We are not quite as far as Eric Boyette in North Carolina. They're, we're envious of them. Right. But I mean, you understand that the, the cyber attackers, the folks deploying ransomware attacks are going to continue to you know, target those vulnerable towns and, and places that you just mentioned that really don't have governments because they are easy targets, right? They're, they're such easy targets. And once they're hit, they're even at a loss. And I, I know I've shared with you, Matt, but I'll tell a, a brief little story about a, a small town up on the Canadian border. They got encrypted and all of a sudden, dispatches down. Everything they have is now not functioning. The chief of the police eventually calls me and said, Fred, I've talked to some federal agencies. I've talked to a number of folks. And what I keep hearing is there's jurisdictional issues and they can't help me. And I really just, I'm looking for someone to tell me what to do. So when you stop and think about how do they prevent they don't have the capacity? How do they detect? Well, in this case, this was a town we actually detected some some traffic coming from them and actually had given them an indication that there was infections. They called their consultants who came and installed an antivirus or something, but clearly not sophisticated enough in order to prevent it from taking hold. So we need to help them with prevention, uh, detection. And then, of course, in this case, now it's too late. And he's saying, what do I do? And so in this case, we're able to deploy some folks, but this is the area where they're not even sure where to go. So that idea of saying, hey, the state government is available to help you and advise you, even if that's all we do is get that message out there, we're in a better place than we were before. 
Right. And I think that this topic of talking about the vulnerabilities of local governments was certainly on the forefront of our meetings last week here in D.C. And I know, Fred, for our listeners, you joined a couple of other state CIOs, Eric Boyette, who we just mentioned, NASIO president, CIO from North Carolina, and also a faithful listener of NASIO Voices, and Dennis Goulet, the CIO in New Hampshire and our vice president. And you guys came down here for our annual strategic partner briefing and some meetings with key congressional staff on Capitol Hill, a sort of Mr. Britain comes to Washington, if you will. Can you discuss some of those meetings we had on the Hill and your takeaways? Sure. They were wonderful. We met with both with staffers from the Senate Homeland Security Committee and the House Homeland Security Committee as well as some staffers from NGA while we were there. The idea of federal support for state and local governments around cyber is, I found it, there is no question about should they do it or not. It was mom and apple pie, the concept of doing it. Uh, there's a couple bills that are currently in flight that are you know, very important to us. One of is this state and local cybersecurity coordinator where the federal government would put somebody in all 50 states who could help marshal some of those resources with the various federal resources, FBI, CISA, and others. Yep. With the state folks, really important. The other bill that would create some grant opportunities to distribute funds out to the states who would use those funds both for state cyber and in support of local. So the idea that those needed to move forward, both House and Senate seemed very supportive of the idea The area that left me with some concern, though, and I I will share this, was the question of how to distribute it. And there seemed to be uh, mixed opinions about, does it go through FEMA? Should it go directly to CISA? What's the process? Are we going to ask for some state matching? My hope is that the folks involved will begin to recognize that this is urgent. This isn't something that should be dragged out for a year or two years. And so I am a little worried that this is going to get caught up in conversation and debate. And perhaps some of that distribution is mechanisms for distribution is even a little bit partisan. So I'm hoping that they can get through that and get through it quickly. I am thankful that all involved recognize there's great need and they want to help. Yeah, it's and I think you're you're spot on with that. There is this recognition that Congress does have a fundamental role to play in this. It's just a question of how and what that role is and like you touched on whether or not these potential grant opportunities are going to be run by FEMA or CISA or someone else, but you're absolutely right. This is an urgent need and we're going to continue to to press on this. Any other takeaways from the meetings? Did we scare you from ever coming to D.C. again to, to do these types of things? That was a great experience. I would be happy to come back. Thanks. Well, we certainly appreciated having you and um, your input in, in those meetings was certainly appreciated. So finally, we like to do a little something here we call the lightning round. And I'm going to ask you a few <laughs> lighter rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Go for it. Okay, great. Fred, you've been CIO for almost a year. What one piece of advice would you give to a brand new state CIO? Do not come in and make massive changes. Remember that CIO's tenures are very limited, which means there is a constant churn. Instead of doing the new guy thing where you try to change everything, arrive and look for the good that your predecessor has underway and try to continue good work. For sure. Okay. 
Second question. Now, we aren't sponsored by the Maine Board of Tourism or anyone, but where is one place in Maine that everyone should visit? Everyone needs to see Acadia National Park mm-hmm. at least once. It is beautiful, but that's only a slice of Maine. People think Maine, they think coastal. The majority of Maine is woods and mountains. Baxter State Park and Mount Katahdin is a wonderful, wonderful place to visit for an outdoors person, especially if you love hiking. It's probably one of the most beautiful hikes on the, in the east. Question number three, what are your favorite hobbies outside of work? Oh, riding a bike. And I don't care what kind of bike. And if you ask any cyclist how many they have, well, if you ask me, I'll tell you six. If you ask me wow. how many I need, the answer is always N plus one. So I wow. have six, <laughs> but I really should have seven. Uh, and you're and you're riding outside it. in the winter? In Maine, and it's it's taken off everywhere. Our, these things are called fat tire bikes. Sometimes you'll see them on the beach, but there's a different type for the snow. And we ride snowmobile trails. And 12 months out of the year, we're, we're spinning pedals. Wow. That's awesome. So last question, sort of in that vein, what tips can you give us on how to survive the cold winters in Maine? If you don't want to play outside in the winter, don't come to Maine. be an outdoors person right there's plenty of warm clothes and there's so much to do winters are wonderful here there's skiing there's biking there's skating there's snowmobiling there's fishing there's ice fishing there's so much to do here obviously for me it's biking and i'll strap on the skis a whole bunch too it's a wonderful place to be all right fred well i think we're out of time but thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today we really appreciate it and thank you. And, uh, you know, always thanks to NASIO for everything that you folks do. Thanks, Fred. You make it a lot easier for us to be a CIO. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to NASIO Voices. Stay tuned for our next episode. And we'd love to hear feedback and questions from you. Please use the hashtag NASIO Voices on Twitter, and we will answer your questions on a later podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, maybe leave a review. And thanks to everyone who has already done so.